0: welcome back to the podcast the myths that make us Uh, today's episode is going to be a little bit different Um, i'm going to share the recording that i have at the beginning of the dharma journal where i essentially map out my journey to finding my dharma you know if i can claim such a wild thing but I want this podcast or this episode to be a little bit different. Um, I want to talk to y'all. There's been quite a few things that has happened in my life concerning my dharma in the last five or six weeks, and I'm feeling really called to create some type of dialogue with y'all. You know, like the way a podcast is structured is essentially, you know, it's me talking to somebody and then you all listen, but I don't get to interact with y'all directly. And also the way Instagram is set up is it's I share something, but I don't get to interact with y'all in real time. And so I'm imagining with my producer Graham, shout out Graham, um, how I can create some type of weekly touch point where I get to um like interact with y'all in real time. And so what we're dreaming into is creating a membership site that's going to be like probably seven dollars a month. And on it, um I'm going to condense my Patreon and my Substack Substack is the program that I was using for the Dream Dancing newsletter, but the way that they're running their company feels kind of weird. So I'm trying to condense that all into a membership site. And I think the big thing that I want to do with the membership site is what I am currently calling Project Lyceum. So, Lyceum was a temple that the Greek philosophers would essentially have open debates at and would teach people how to be philosophers. And one of the things that I've connected to since I've done a couple of live podcasts, but only a few, is the people that I respect the most, who have made the most profound books, the one thing that they all have in common is they were teachers for a really long time like they were professors and they taught their ideas for decades to groups of people um and they were able to get real-time feedback on what part of their ideas were dope what part of their ideas didn't make sense um a really beautiful thing that happens as a speaker if you're paying attention is the nervous system of all the people watching will unconsciously tell you What you are saying or what part of what you are saying is most meaningful, most interesting because they're silent and they stop fidgeting and their eyes are fixed on you and you can feel that the room is like being collectively held by the idea and their nervous systems will also tell you when what you are saying is not resonating people start to move or they yawn or their eyes start to dart back and forth or they might begin to whisper or whatever. And I want to create something digital and at scale where I can start to interact with y'all in that way. So what we're thinking is to do like a weekly Zoom call and the people who are a part of the membership site will get that link And I'll just almost do like a live podcast, but it's just going to be me riffing and maybe me talking to Graham about whatever ideas are currently most alive in me. And I want to be able to see y'all's faces. And I might, you know, talk for 20 to 40 minutes, depending on the idea. And then um, I'm going to take questions. And I would like to do that every week. Unless, you know, there's something big going on in my life, like travel or something. Um, And of course, I'll I'll continue doing the podcast because I love that. But I want to, I want to begin having a place where I can share my ideas with you guys. Um, So that's something that's alive in me. And the other thing that I want to be really candid about is I don't, I have yet to figure out how to advertise the Dharma Journal in a way where it feels authentic. Because I truly believe that if any one of you actually did it and committed to the seven days that it would take to create it, that it would change your life. It would give you a direct channel to talk to your soul every day. And by the time that it's done, there's a weekly meditation or a daily meditation that you would do that takes 11 minutes that would connect you to what is the most sacred thing for you to do today. Because the thing that I find on almost every coaching call and every coaching conversation that I ever have is it comes down to, are you able to feel what your soul is asking you to do today, the one thing. And that if you can get still and feel it and hear it, and then have the courage to do whatever that one thing is each day, that's how you enter your dharma. And that's how you know grace. And this product is the best current attempt that I have made and can make. To help share with y'all the weirdness that I bring to my own life to help me live that way. And so this podcast episode is essentially to give you guys a taste of what is in the Dharma Journal. And so I will be sharing the first audio, which is about 30 minutes long. Um, And then if you're interested, by the time that this podcast is live... You can go to thedharmajournal.com and uh, for free check out the first day's meditation, so you can get a taste of, to be frank, the depth and the profundity of what this magical spell could do for you. Um, I would love to hear y'all's feedback on the idea that I shared. And the email that you guys can send your responses to is the myths that make us at gmail.com. And Graham will be going through those and he will be reading them and letting me know what y'all think. Um, but I'm really excited to try to create some type of container where I can interact with y'all more directly and learn from you, you know. Um, And as always, the best way to support this podcast is to share it with people that you think it'll help and to sign up to the newsletter because that's how you can keep up to date with all the craziness that's going on in my life. And as always, thank you guys so much for your attention. I love you. And without further ado, please enjoy my Dharma journey. My Dharma Journey Introduction Humans live on stories, and I want to share my story of how a dream saved my life twice, and how the death of those dreams almost killed me. I want to share how death gave me new life twice, and I want to share the most beautiful idea I have found in this life, that has helped me create a life more beautiful than I had allowed myself to ever imagine possible. My first death. From the day puberty gave me a growth spurt and a sex drive, my entire being was aimed at becoming a professional basketball player. That goal guided every choice I made, who my friends were, what I ate, what I wore, what I dreamt about, Everything. This vision of my future, of who I wanted to become, gave my life meaning. I had a vision for my future that I loved and that I felt I was making progress towards every day. And that's what gave me the felt sense of meaning. My love for basketball introduced me to some of my favorite sensations. It taught me what growth felt like that felt sense that I was getting better at something that I loved because I was choosing to practice. Basketball taught me what flow felt like. That felt sense that time and ego evaporate and my being became completely aligned with the present moment. I knew where to move, I knew where to look, how to spin, how to shoot. Life felt like a dance that was dancing me in those moments. And that was my first taste of transcendence. Basketball also taught me power. I didn't feel safe expressing anger or aggression as a child, and basketball was the first place that it felt okay to dominate other people. It is seared into my body's memory the few times that I felt, for lack of a better word, like a god. The feeling of having a group of humans trying their absolute hardest to stop me from doing what I wanted to do and then watching them fail, and doing whatever the fuck I wanted to do. It's one of the most intoxicating feelings that I've ever felt. And although I didn't realize it at the time, basketball taught me the importance of having a vision for my future that required me to cultivate my competence at a specific craft. It taught me that if you love the vision of your future, and you practice that craft every day the meaning that this dance can give you has the ability to carry you through your parents getting divorced not feeling the presence of your father in your life anymore after that divorce navigating familial mental illness watching your grandfather slowly die in your living room from cancer while your only parent is away at war And they can see you through never quite getting that first love of your life. Basketball taught me the grace that comes to us when we are in alignment with whatever our current vision for our future is. And then, at 17, as I was running down a cold court in the dark night of Wisconsin, feeling a little bit faster and a little bit stronger and a little bit smoother than all the other players on the basketball court. I felt a powerful hand reach from behind me, grab my right arm and yank it down. And I felt it before I heard it. I felt lightning and acid explode in my shoulder. And then I heard it, the sound of tissue tearing and a joint popping. My arm had been torn from my shoulder socket. I crumbled to the floor, crying out from two different kinds of pains. The first pain was the damage to my flesh and muscle and bone. That pain was something I had never known before. The doctors told me later that a dislocated shoulder is one of the most painful types of physical injuries. But that second pain... A pain that took years to fully blossom was a spiritual pain. A part of my psyche knew as I laid in a sweaty and crying heap on that basketball court in that Wisconsin winter, a part of me had died. The Seed of My Second Life For a long time I refused the truth. I saw doctors and I ignored doctors. After four or five weeks, as soon as I could lift my arm over my head, I tried to play again, and it was one of the hardest nights of my life. Life had to teach me that my body could not play anymore. Every time I touched the ball trying to deflect a pass, explosion of pain. Every time I tried to box someone out and put my elbow up, explosion of pain. I could not admit it to myself, and after a couple of minutes, the coach had to take me out. And for the rest of the game, I sat on that bench, disassociated from the truth. I came home that night, and I started crying in my mother's office. I think this was the first time I had cried in front of her since I was a child. It brings me to tears now, feeling into the pain and helplessness that I saw on her face because before her was her son, and he was suffering, and she did not know how to make the suffering go away. But she gave me a story, and neither of us knew at the time but that this story would become the seed that would give birth to my second life. Before I came into her office with my tears, she had been reading a story in her online philosophy class, and it was called Plato's Allegory of the Cave. My mom can easily slip into passionate monologues. That's probably where I get it from. And she entered that energy as she told the story of a man born into a cave who only knew the shadows that were cast on the cave wall by firelight, but who one day was able to leave the cave and see the true light of the sun for the first time. He was able to see what the grass looked like, what trees looked like what flowers and butterflies and birds looked like. Everything in his life had changed because he was free from that cave where all he saw was the shadows on the wall. And he tried to come back and he tried to tell his friends about the true light. And they turned to him and they mocked him and called him insane. That was the first piece of formal philosophy I had ever heard. And something in me was born. It was small. It was young, and it was quiet, but with the clarity of hindsight, I can see that that was one of the most important notes in the song of my life. But I wasn't ready for a new movement in the symphony of my life just yet. I spent the next year dislocating my shoulder over a dozen times until I finally submitted to getting surgery. Due to a series of unusual events as an 18-year-old, I lived alone in a large house. Uh, the moment I turned 18, January 1st, I got this house. I lived in this house alone and I was a senior in high school. And all I had to my name was a blow up mattress, patio furniture inside of my living room and a big ass screen TV. And this was the home that I was brought back to after my shoulder surgery. I had no parental supervision and only a few well-meaning but uninformed friends to try to protect me from a three-month prescription of Oxycontin, an undiagnosed depression, and the reverberations of the death of a dream. That last half of my senior year of high school is a blur. The singular memory I have from that time is how good it felt to skip breakfast and take two Oxycontin. For three months, I was dead to my life. Eventually, I ran out of my synthetic heroin. I didn't know how to get more, and I didn't really try. I didn't even care enough, to. And so what I decided to do was to eat. And I really started eating. I replaced the heroin with carbohydrates, and by the end of high school, I had gained 30 pounds of fat and was regularly wearing two shirts to hide the lumps of flesh falling off of my frame. Somehow, I stumbled into college. I hadn't applied to any schools. I hadn't even thought about it. But I did get a letter in the mail from a local university telling me that I had been accepted. At least that's how it read. Really, it was a marketing letter to get me to apply to their expensive private university. And it worked. Some part of me had had enough sense to realize that I hadn't applied to any colleges and that if I didn't get my shit together enough to do so, a bleak and terrifying life would be awaiting me. I ended up at a private Southern Baptist University in Central Texas. Looking back at this, it seems unreal. I was the most outspoken atheist in every room I'd ever been in since I was eight. I would debate theology in classrooms, at parties, on dates, at work, and I now was required to sit in a chapel every Wednesday and sing hymns to songs that I didn't know and listen to guest speakers talk about abstinence while the guy next to me was on Tinder. It was surreal. My first year of college was still more stumbling as I slowly realized that I had to try in my classes. I slowly just stopped going to class. I realized that I had never had to try. I had never had to study. And I didn't know how to. I had been smart enough to not learn any good habits and to get B's in high school. And so what did I do? I just stopped going to class. I remember looking back at my GPA after my first year of college. It was a 0.7 I was still clearly depressed, numb to my life, and slowly watching it fall around me. The Joe Rogan Experience At the beginning of the summer, after my first year of college, I remember this night where I decided to smoke some weed, and I turned on Netflix, and I put on a stand-up comedy special. It was by some dude named Joe Rogan. I didn't know who Joe Rogan was at the time. It was 2010. I'd never heard his name before. i had never heard the word podcast before, but I liked the energy that the preview had. And so I watched it. After 30 or so minutes, he started to tell a joke about, we all think that we're the smart people, but what do you do if the electricity goes out? You do what I do. You sit in the darkness And you say, these fucking idiots can't get the lights back on. But what would you do if all the people who knew how this shit worked died? And it was just us. The stupid people who think that they're the smart people. What would you do? And it was like my soul was Uma Thurman from Pulp Fiction. She had been in a coma and this joke was the needle of adrenaline to my heart. It's hard to describe, but something inside of me exploded awake in that moment, gasping. I had what felt like a religious experience on that ugly-ass yellow couch watching a Joe Rogan stand-up special on Netflix. With a zeal that I've only known in the deepest psychedelic states, I felt a flood of downloads come from whatever felt like another being inside of me. It felt like there was someone else inside of me communicating to me through this feeling. And if I tried to put the feeling of this moment into words, it would be something like this. You think you're smart because you argue with your teachers. You're arrogant and you are throwing your life away because you are not willing to humble yourself. The truth is you don't know anything. You don't know anything useful. And if you don't seize the opportunity that you have in front of you, you are going to regret this the rest of your life. Only I can truly know the depth of what this experience felt like for me, but it felt as if something like a God spoke directly to me and that she was stern and upset. It was a powerful enough experience that something inside of me fundamentally changed that night. The very next day, I woke up and I began reading as long as I could every day and then listening to lectures until I went to sleep every day. I started reading all my textbooks. I basically read every philosophy book that I could find in our little library. And I started listening to all the great theological debates on the internet that I could find. And then a couple of weeks later, I heard that feeling again. And it told me to shave my head to drive 36 hours from my home in Texas to see my mom in Washington State and to stay there for the summer, to not talk to anyone in my life that I know, and to continue to read and to write and to learn. It was the first call to adventure that I had ever heard and had said yes to since my dream of basketball had died. And this is when I started watering the seed that my mom had planted in me almost two years ago. The best word to describe the energy with which I was studying philosophy and psychology that summer is devouring. I read A History of Western Philosophy by Bertrand Russell, and I read almost every Philosopher in 90 Minute book in the series. And I was particularly drawn to Nietzsche and the existential philosophers who I started to read directly. And the truth is, the profundity with which I did not feel safe after my Joe Rogan experience, was existential and crushing. And I was desperately looking into philosophy to find somewhere to feel safe. And it was at the end of this summer, between my freshman and sophomore year of college, when I first heard my first podcast, episode 127 of the Joe Rogan Experience with Aubrey Marcus, Enter In My First Allies. It was my last night of my Monk Summer 2010 tour and I was packing and I wanted to put on a lecture and I somehow found this podcast. And as I listened to these two men talk, I felt for the third time in my life, that God feeling again. However, this time it felt different. She wasn't upset with me and she wasn't giving me stern commands about things I needed to do. She just felt happy. She felt like she was dancing. What I didn't realize then, but I can see clearly now, was my Joe Rogan experience was what it felt like when my soul was finally able to make contact with my ego. And naturally, it was upset. And the second experience, this was when my soul felt like it was ready to give me a call to adventure, and I said yes. I had started studying. I had started trying. I shaved my head and drove across the country and I showed my soul that I was listening and that I would act. I took the leap and I landed on a bed of flowers. But back to Joe and Aubrey. For the first time in my life, I was seeing men that I was inspired by, men who were having the kinds of conversations that I wanted to have, who were living the kind of lives that I wanted to live, It was the first example I'd ever seen that there was an entirely different way to play the game of life. I remember Googling best Joe Rogan guests that night and seeing that the top answer was someone named Duncan Trussell. So I downloaded every podcast they had did together, which was more than 36 hours worth of talking because I listened to it the entire time I drove, and I remember The night that I pulled up to my house in Texas after that long period of being in this monk mode, the moon was big and bright in the sky, and I emerged from that car reborn. I had removed myself from my old life for an entire summer. I had buried my consciousness in science and philosophy, and then unexpectedly, Spent the last two days being baptized in spirituality, lost civilizations, aliens, Eastern religions, comedy, and most importantly, I absorbed Joe Rogan's insatiable hunger to improve and Duncan Trussell's curiosity about psychedelics. I brought the same energy that I brought to studying philosophy to exploring psychedelics the following year, and this was the beginning of the next chapter of my life introducing psychedelics. My sophomore year was the year of psychedelics. At the start of the year, I read one of the most impactful books on my life, and it's called Pi Call. It introduced me to how to intentionally use psychedelics and inspired in me the drive to approach psychedelics like a psychologist doing experiments and to write trip reports. I had no idea then how deeply this one act would help me create the life that I live now. Eventually, I found a good source, and for a 10-week period, every weekend, I did some sort of journey with mushrooms, LSD, or DMT, and I wrote a trip report about it. And although this period taught me indescribable depths of the human experience, consciousness, and about myself, things started to fall apart. Clearly, I was irresponsible with the amount and frequency I was diving into the psychedelic waters. Although my intentions were pure, each time was intentional and for self-exploration, I was not equipped to explore that deeply without guides. And by the end of my second year of college, I was acing all my classes, but underneath the mask of the student, I was losing my grip on reality. My second death. To set the stage, I started my psychedelic period an ardent atheist. As I progressed through my psychedelic experiences, I moved towards agnosticism, but I still leaned towards atheism, and I saw these experiences as beautiful byproducts of the majesty of the human nervous system interacting with these compounds. And I didn't have the sight to see it then, but more important than whether or not God is real, I felt alone. For a whole host of reasons, my animal body felt unloved, unseen, unworthy, and in order to not face my own pain and be transformed by it, I became, philosophically speaking, a skeptic. Descartes is famous for attempting to refute skepticism and concluded, I think, therefore I am. He had used radical skepticism to cut away all other sources of knowledge and believed that he found that the one thing that skepticism can't cut away is thinking. Clearly, Descartes did not do psychedelics. I can feel that it is hard to articulate the profundity of what I was feeling at this time in my life, but I had thought myself into a mild functional psychosis through skepticism. I couldn't understand how I could believe in anything, even thinking, and it crippled me. I couldn't maintain relationships. I couldn't decide what I wanted to do with my life. I couldn't even plan for the next month or the next week or the next day. And I think back to this period of my life, I don't remember having any close friendships. All the rooms that I were in at that time in my memory are now whitewashed, drained of life and artificial feeling. I cognitively know that I had friends. I had color and laughter and love. But memory doesn't care what you had. It cares how you felt. And this is how I felt. And then a book came along. Godel Escher Bach. And it delivered the final insult to a crumbling ego. And I broke. The core argument of this fantastic book is that logic, i.e. philosophy, cannot prove anything... Because it contradicts itself by referencing itself to prove itself. I know that sounds like word soup, but essentially, the entirety of logic references logic as the reason that validates whatever it is that you are saying. But one of the tenets of logic is that that self-referential loop is illogical. Okay, and just to give you guys an idea, this is not just the rambling of some incoherent crazy person. Uh, The historical context for this insight in philosophy uh, came in the early 20th century when Bertrand Russell and Alfred Whitehead spent almost a decade writing a huge series of books that was trying to formally prove math through logic and they produced i think it was like a 10 volume book and then a couple of months later uh, this obscure mathematician wrote like a 34-page essay and it's called godel's theorem and he basically mathematically proved that all of logic is essentially illogical because it must reference itself to prove itself and he explained this mathematically And then it was received by the scientific and philosophic and mathematic community as like one of the most important things ever written about math and logic. So that really hit me. And this might seem like an obvious conclusion to most people, but it was the beginning of the death of my second dream. As I was slowly working through this 900 page book, one Sunday, I took five grams of mushrooms. And as I was lying on my back, looking up at the ceiling, listening to beautiful music, I found myself beginning to muse on the book. Wow. Logic contradicts itself whenever it tries to prove anything. Wow. I can't prove anything with logic. Wow. Even my skepticism is illogical because I use logic to justify it. Wow. Wow. Everything that I've been trying to do for the last three years, wow, it can't be done. And then I had a vision. So to give some context, uh, when I started playing basketball, I was like, I'm going to be the greatest basketball player of all time. And then that died. And then when I got into philosophy, I was so set on, I was going to write a philosophical book and publish it before I graduated and would be recognized as some super amazing, important, like young gifted philosopher. And while I was on these five grams of mushrooms, I realized everything that I've been trying to do for the last three years was a waste of time and it was impossible. And so then I saw this vision. I saw what looked like a cube trying to contain the universe but that no matter how big the cube was, there was more universe outside of the cube, and so you would have to make a new cube outside of that cube, and then a third one out of that one. And this apparently innocent-seeming vision represented the death of my second dream. My first god was basketball, and my dream was to be a professional basketball player. That dream died the night my arm was torn out of my shoulder socket. My second god was philosophy, and my dream was to write the next great philosophic work that dream died the day that I understood Godel's Theorem. I realized I had been trying for the last three years to put the mystery of existence inside of the cube of language. And this dream of writing this book, Mushroom showed me, taught me, so I understood it in my atoms, that this task was impossible. And this moment was to my mind what my arm being torn from my shoulder was to my body. It was my second great wound. My mind spiraled into what was officially my first bad trip. I felt like my map of reality, which was already shaky, was crumbling and eventually I arrived at the thought, I have a brain tumor and I'm going to die soon. And to try to escape my fear, I ran out of my house, barefoot, and for the next two hours I jogged around my neighborhood. I'll never forget the lusciousness of that day as I ran. It had rained the night before, and as I was running at sunset, peeking on the five grams of mushrooms, I saw a hundred different shades of green in the grass, dozens of different watercolor-esque hues of orange and blue and pink and purple and red in the setting sky. I felt my body powerfully pumping blood, my muscles contracting and stretching, and my mind, thank God, for the first time in years, was quiet. Eventually, I stopped, and as I sat on my driveway that night, admiring the lantern glow of the porch lights along my street, I was able to admit that I knew that there was something wrong with me. It was a calm knowing my consciousness was sick. I thought too much and I lived too little. I saw how the obsession that I had with philosophy was aimed at something futile. I was trying to capture infinity in my hands. And although the truth of the futility crushed me, I knew it was true. And in time, I knew it would liberate me, but I knew that I needed help. I didn't know how but I did some clunky version of a prayer and I asked for help. I don't know what or who I am talking to or what is listening or what I'm asking for, but please help me. I feel so lost. I feel so alone. I don't know what to do. Please help me. And then entered pragmatism. A few months after that prayer, I had found the author that would go on to save my life. Robert Anton Wilson, one of the greatest geniuses you likely have never heard of, wrote a book called Prometheus Rising that, among many other epoch-changing ideas, introduced to me the concept of reality tunnels. With a levity and a profundity that still awes me whenever I reread his work, he demonstrated that there is no single way to interpret reality ever. There is no right answer. And instead of this being devastating, this can be the key to living the most interesting, enjoyable, sexy, and delicious life possible. He called this perspective model agnosticism. A quote of his, The Copenhagen interpretation, which we get from physics, is called model agnosticism and holds that any grid or story that we use to organize our experience of the world is a model of the world and should not be confused with the world itself. Alfred Korbinski, the semantists, tried to popularize this outside of physics with the slogan, the map is not the territory. Alan Watts, a talented oriental philosopher, restated it more vividly as the menu is not the meal. Again, it is hard to articulate the profundity that this idea brought me and how it changed my life, but for the last two years since my Joe Rogan experience, I had been desperately, frantically, obsessively searching for the right way to interpret reality. I could feel that Robert Anton Wilson had touched the same existential dread and depths that I had, and he came back laughing. He had a sense of humor about the entire enterprise that I was destroying myself trying to quote unquote complete. His levity gave me permission to fucking relax. And his core message was this. Every perspective on life is a reality tunnel. It is not the actual truth. No one knows the capital T truth, and the best that we can do is make models. So don't fret, you little philosopher. You get to choose your reality tunnel, and you can create a new one, and a better one, and a sexier one, whenever you want. His dream for people was to help them create the sexiest, most useful, most enjoyable, most poetic, and most fun reality tunnel possible. This led me eventually to studying the formal philosophical school of pragmatism and specifically its founding one of its founding fathers, William James. And this was where the weary, broken little philosopher in me finally found shelter. He finally found a home. I had found my philosophical bedrock. Pragmatism is a formal school of philosophic thought that essentially says the same thing that Robert Anton Wilson's model agnosticism says and the essence of pragmatism is this human's ability to know objective truth is limited by their senses and their senses have been molded by the forces of evolution evolution selects for perceiving adaptiveness not objective reality and for a deep dive into the science that supports this you can check out dr hoffman's work His book is called A Case Against Reality. Humans have not evolved the ability to physically be able to apprehend objective truth. Humans have evolved to perceive evolutionarily adaptive illusions like time and space, duality, objects, Newtonian physics, etc. Therefore, all knowledge is best understood as tools to aid the human nervous system in adaptive action. All knowledge that can't be tested through action is metaphysical. And if it's metaphysical, no one has ever known the truth about it and no one will ever know the truth about it. But we can talk about it and have fun about it if we want. But you don't have to get all riled up about it because no one knows what the truth is. The knowledge that we act from are experiments and pragmatic truth. A quote from Tich Nhat Hanh is, Our own life is the instrument with which we experiment with the truth. And so, I had found the philosophy that freed me from philosophy. I had found the philosophy that invited me out of my books and into the world. I had found the philosophy that brought me back to life. I had found the philosophy that kept me out of a fucking mental hospital. The most pragmatic idea, the potential trinity. The most pragmatic idea that I have found since my liberation from philosophy, that I have used to guide my little ego from wrapping burritos at Chipotle to living my dream life, has been the idea of the potential trinity. I believe the most important relationship that you will ever have in your life is between your ego and your potential. And the force inside of you that mediates that relationship is your daemon. I imagine my potential as a kind of God that sits outside of space and time. I imagine he has been watching me my entire life and he knows me more intimately than any other being. He knows every thought I've thought, dream I've dreamt, and tear I've cried because he is me. He is my potential. And he has a single desire. To help my ego transform into him. And so, he has created a force to guide me, my daemon. I imagine my potential is sitting on a mythic cliff outside three-dimensional reality. He can't directly interfere with my life, but what he can do is sing a song. I imagine our daemons are the songs our potentials sing to our ego towards whatever the next transformation is that is required for us to become more of who we could be. And because the ego perceives transformation like death, our civilization has warped the relationship that we all have with our daemon. The daemon is the still inner whisper that calls your ego to the next transformation. The ego is like an acorn that's trying to stay an acorn, and the daemon is the force and the seed that continuously whispers grow. The daemon ignored feels like a demon. Its invitation to grow will feel like a haunting if you believe that you are meant to stay an acorn. It's a topic for another time, but I believe the majority of chronic physical illness and most mental disorders are rooted in our ego looking away from the call of our daemon by our potential. However, if you can train your ego to continuously answer the call of your daemon, to act on your daemon's behalf, when you have the hard conversation, let go of the addiction, or pursue the wild unlikely dream career, When you bring the ego into alignment with its potential through listening to the daemon, this is when we step into our dharma. Dharma is the felt sense of alignment between the ego, the daemon, and one's potential. Dharma is the felt sense that we call grace. And it is this feeling of grace that I most attribute the massive success that I've experienced in my life in the last three years. Three years ago, I was living with my mother and had under $800 to my name. Now I run my own company. I get to coach an incredible mastermind and I get to do research for my mentor's next book and I have a book deal waiting for me after that and I am surrounded by people that I would die for and who would die for me. I attribute a great deal of this success to the unwavering commitment that I made three years ago that if my daemon asks me to do something, regardless of my ego's thrashing, I do it. This journal is dedicated to helping you step into your dharma so you too can experience this grace. And there is a story that I love that highlights the essence of the potential trinity. The Myth of the Rainmaker One of my favorite pragmatic ideas is that myths and stories are symbolic representations of archetypical energies in the human psyche. Myths about kings are stories about the eternal obstacles leaders face. Myths about romance are stories about the eternal obstacles lovers face. Myths about an adventurer facing a dragon are stories about the eternal obstacles we all face in our personal development. The myth of the Rainmaker, which was a personal favorite of the great modern mystic Carl Jung, perfectly captures what life can be like when we dance with our dharma. Jung's friend, a Western academic and anthropologist, went to Japan for a few months and happened upon a village that was experiencing a drought. He went to the elders of the village and asked them how they were handling the crisis. He asked them if they were building deeper wells or requesting water from neighboring villages. The elders looked at the Westerner, confused and amused, and they said no, that they had called for the rainmaker. And the Westerner did not understand what this meant. These men seemed abnormally calm to him amidst their dying crops and dehydrated livestock. Later that day, an old man came to the village and was excitedly greeted by the elders. This old man was ushered to a hut at the edge of the village and he entered it alone. And for the next three days, the westerner observed that no one entered the hut and the old man never left. As the sun set on the third day, Rain began to pour. Children came out of their homes and started singing. The adults came out and started dancing. They celebrated long into the night. And as the sun rose in the morning, the westerner was the first awake, and trudging through mud and budding new flowers, he arrived at the front of that hut, waiting for the old man to come out. When he did, the westerner was the first to greet him, and he said, How did you do this? And the rainmaker replied, I came from a land that was in order. The land being in order rains when it needs to rain. When I came here, I felt that the land was out of order and it infected me. And so I became out of order. I came to this hut to put myself back in order. And as I came into order, the land came into order. And as the land came into order, The land did what it needed to do, and so it rained. Before the rainmaker left, he told the village elders to begin building a temple. He told them if they followed one rule, the land would stay in order and that he would not have to return. And the one rule was this. At least one stone must be placed every day, and a stone can only be placed by someone who has brought themselves into order that day. As the Westerner left, he saw the village beginning to clear space in the middle of their settlement to begin the multi-generational commitment to build their Dharma temple. Building our Dharma temple. There is a kingdom inside of us that is calling us to become a rainmaker and to manifest order. When we learn to bow the ego to the call of the daemon, I believe that we manifest this order. So for the next week... We're going to do the work of building our inner Dharma temple. Let's go.